You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Hi, guys. If by chance I don't know some of you on this call today, I'm Brenna Rubio. I'm the other pastor here at City Church of Long Beach, and it's, it's really good to be with everyone today. Uh, we are in sort of a new series, still sort of at the beginning end of it, um, called Lost and Found, uh, with an emphasis on and, uh, this sense that we want to try and, and, and hold some things in tension together uh, as we gather together on Sunday mornings. And today we're going to be looking at and thinking a little bit about how sometimes stories get lost, perspectives get lost. So uh, as I was prepping uh, for this, this time today, I was, I was thinking about a, a, a story from my own past. Uh, one of those times where the curtain kind of got ripped back for me. And I realized that there was just a whole world of stories that I just, I wasn't aware of. So I was 16 and I was out by myself at some fast food restaurant and I got called white trash. There's actually almost nothing else to tell about that story. I mean, it, it, it was a stranger. There was no context to it. Uh, it was just kind of just something that just kind of happened. Like out of nowhere, someone just called me white trash. Uh, and it was super upsetting for me at the time, right? Like, I mean, I just, uh, I was 16 and, you know, the world revolved around me anyway. Uh, and uh, the, this, this kind of shocking to me at the time encounter, it happened. And at the time I was living in a dorm. And so I went back to my dorm, I'm crying. I'm just like so upset about this. I mean, kind of racial slur uh, that had been used towards me. And, and so I do what any 16 year old living in a dorm is gonna do. I mean, I'm, all my friends are there and I just start pouring out to them just how shocked and upset I am. But now the thing is that all my friends at the time, well, my roommate, she was Iranian American. Uh, and then one of the other friends, as I remember her sitting around the circle, she was Chinese American. Another friend was Pakistani American. And, and so I have all these friends gathered around me as I'm just, I'm sharing my, my one sort of like shocking little experience that has happened and has, has sort of rocked my world. And they start sharing some of their stories. And they don't have just one story, right? They have 10, 20, 30. I mean, they have a lifetime of experiences um, that, that put my, my little encounter, you know, just, just so in the pale. And I remember the guy that I was dating at the time, uh, he leaned forward and kind of parted his hair, right? to show me some of his scars on his scalp because this was Oklahoma City. That was where I was living at the time and where he, is where he was living uh, in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombings. And though that bombing was committed by white men, uh, not Middle Eastern people as was assumed. And, and though my boyfriend at the time was Indian American not actually even Middle Eastern in heritage, none of that mattered to the boys who had chased him down, throwing rocks at his head 
after the Oklahoma City bombings. Wow, all of these stories that I had never heard before, they had been walled off from my experience. I, I thought we were living in this great post-racial society, right? Um, the civil rights movement, I knew a little bit about that. It had happened and now everything was good, right? Like that's how ignorant I was of so many realities as a 16 year old. So today we're gonna to spend some time in the book of Ezekiel and we're gonna be thinking about some hidden stories, lost stories, stories waiting to be found, waiting to be brought back home, invited back to the table. But so often they're not, so often they are hidden. In Ezekiel 13, uh, there are a couple of verses that go like this, because they, the leaders, lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace. Because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash, it is going to fall. There's this sense of, of this, this wall that is built up and it's covered with whitewash saying like, we're gonna, we're gonna shove realities and truths that we don't like and we're just, we're not gonna show them to people, right? We're gonna present this, this false image, this false wall and tell them this is reality. And there are so many ways that we do that. And yet as, as we come to this passage today, I wanna say it's not just the reality that's hidden, it's not just the stories. You can almost imagine people, right? Their lives, their lived experiences that are shoved behind walls. The pains that they feel, also the joys, the resilience, the creativity, this wall that distorts reality and divides us from each other. And yet the scripture tells us the wall, it's gonna fall. Bill? So good. Thank you, Brother Ruth. And thanks for, thanks for just sharing a little bit uh, of your story. And uh, man, we're gonna to come to the scripture reading in just a second, but before we do, um, uh, I want us to think a little bit about this idea that Brenna brought up of the multiplicity of stories. And we'll get around to how that intersects with justice and care for those on the margins um, in just a minute. But, but there's a sense in which um, we see God's deep love for a multiplicity of stories embedded in the scriptures themselves. I mean, the scriptures themselves tell of all kinds of different stories. And so we, we often will hear from those from the margins. Sometimes those stories are very painful. Sometimes they're very uh, redeeming. But there's another way in which scripture embeds this idea of the multiplicity of stories. If you read the New Testament, there are four different stories of the life of Jesus. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and they're, they're different. They're not the same exact story. They have different emphases. 
they start and stop at different places. They have some different characters. And it's as if God is saying, I want you to hear about life. I want you to know me even from different perspectives. And when you look at the Old Testament, it's the exact same thing. The, the history books in the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're two sets that recount the same stories, right? There's, there's Samuel and Kings, which recount the Samuel, prophet Samuel and David and, and the kings that followed after. And then later on, another set of authors go back to those same stories and reinterpret them from a different time period. They're actually writing from a different continent, essentially. I mean, different, I guess, country, but I suppose it depends where you divide the Middle East. But I mean, from a different part of the world. And so then they write the book of First and Second Chronicles, which is a, a take, a fresh take on the stories of David and Samuel and the kings. A very different approach. Even if you look at the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy is basically what you would call a midrash or a, an interpretation or a reinterpretation, a retake on the first four books. And so what you get is you have embedded in the Bible this idea that different perspectives are healthy, good, and necessary. Jesus himself, when he shows up in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. He says, he's referring to scripture and he's saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said this, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said. Five times he does this reinterpreting of what people knew was God's truth in the scripture. There's a sense in which a different perspective mattered, and Jesus is going to bring that. There are a few of us who've been in this book group we're reading on womanist, uh, it's called Womanist Midrash, and it's womanist theology, which is uh, theology from an African-American and feminist uh, perspective. So it's kind of intersectionality. And Wilda Gaffney is the author, and she is brilliant. But in the introduction, she sort of sets the table for us and says, come, learn. This is what she writes. She says, you are most welcome to this table. Don't worry. It's no trouble. There's plenty to eat. And there are extra places at the table. Rather than while... While affirming the interpretive practices as normative and as holding value for other readers, womanist interpretation makes room at the table of discourse for the perspectives of the least privileged. She's saying there've been a lot of people who said, this is my table. And she's saying, no, the womanist perspective is we open up the table and recognize we don't own it. And we need to listen to the voices that we have not always heard. And so now as we come to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to get this emphasis from God who's saying, hey, this matters to me. The people who have not been welcomed at the table, the people who said they own the table and not let others in, no, that's not how this is going to work. So I'd like to invite Dia Rubio. Can you unmic yourself? Hello, Dia. 
And can you read scripture for us today? I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Ezekiel 34, 16. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks to you. What a great passage of scripture. But as we come to it this morning, uh, you know, with, with this picture of the table in front of us, particularly, um, it's hard for me to read this passage and not sort of layer another story on top of it. And I sort of want to explore um, how the two will help us uh, just understand each other. So there's a story that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And it's really, it's probably the most famous story that Jesus tells. Uh, many of you may have heard of it as the story of the prodigal son, right? That or the lost son. It's the son who, who goes away. He is the picture of what it means to be lost, of what it means to be astray. And, and this, the father who welcomes the prodigal son home, who says, come enjoy a feast, runs out to greet him, just like, ah, oh, overjoyed. This is the picture that we see in Ezekiel. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. This is what, this is who our God is. But one of the things that has always bothered me a bit, and certainly like it, it kind of Oh, it really came up for me today. When we think about this word stray, it sounds like a bit like a negative word, right? Uh, even just in the story of the prodigal son, as I always heard it, there was this sense of fault, right? Of blame. The prodigal son made some bad life choices. Maybe, you know, if we're, we're trying to be like nice about it, we say, he made some poor choices, right? Let's not be too judgy, but man, he made some poor choices. And so he goes off and, and he's, you know, he takes his inheritance and he wastes it. And it's, it's not till he's like in a ditch, right? In a pig pen that he sort of wakes up. He's experienced the consequences of his poor choices. And so now he goes back and the father out of the goodness of his heart says, son, come be restored come sit at the table. I just wanna explore for a few minutes today whether there might actually be a little something else going on here that might help us as we think about restoring the lost. See, there's another character in this story, right? For those of you who have read it before, there is an elder son, an elder brother, and the elder brother, when his younger brother comes back, he is not as excited as the father. He's just not. He's mad. And he sees his father throwing this big welcome home feast. And now he's, he's really angry, right? He doesn't want to sit at the table with his younger brother. He gets all judgy and up on his high horse and, you know, just like, ah. You know... So often in scripture, we see these stories of sibling relationships that kind of go south, 
um, where there is there's rivalry. Um, there's a sense of, you know, sort of like competing um, for resources, for the affections, for the attention, for the riches uh, of the parents in the story, competing for the blessing. In, in some of the stories, one of the siblings actually dies. In others, one of the siblings is pushed out, has to leave the family home because there's just no peace there. There's, there's just not enough room at the table. The sibling relationship has gotten just so tense, so uncomfortable, that it's not so much that they just make some poor choices and leave. It's that actually they get pushed out. They have to leave. Because one of the siblings at the table said, there's no room for you here. I don't want you here. And so... For the first time, like looking at this story, I kind of went, oh, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, what if it's not so much about their poor choices? What if it's about how the community was working? What if it's about how the table was set up in the first place? What if this relationship, the way the brother acts, the older brother acts when the younger brother comes home, what if that's not an anomaly, right? But that's a picture of how their relationship was working the whole time. And so now when we think about the father saying, I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays. My son, my younger son, you who have been pushed out, I want you to come back. There are gonna be some consequences and some implications for the elder brother for the one who has fought for and claimed all the space, all the privilege, it's not actually gonna work unless the older brother makes some room. It's not gonna work. And so there's actually a choice. And, and a choice for us is we think, oh, how are we going to make room for more people at the table. Or for us, if we identify more with the younger brother, what does it look like for us to trust the father to create some space? Bill? You know, there's uh, towards the end, uh, hey, Kevin, I'm gonna jump down to a different slide, but in Ezekiel 34, it says, this is right in that same passage, and it's speaking to the older brother, so to speak, right? In the same passage about these sheep that have gotten lost, and, and God is saying, hey, I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to bring you back. This is what it says in Ezekiel 34, 21 through 22. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered, right? It's, it's the strong and the sleek who make a way for ourselves, right? This is what happens. It's just like the, I mean, in, in, in Brenna's imagination of, the, of that famous parable, that's it. Yes, of course. That's how the older son always lived. In fact, at the very end of that parable, he says, 
to his father. He says, haven't I always slaved away for you? His own self-perception is that he's always been working so hard. And you could easily read that as he's always lived a graceless life. Never making space at the table for his little brother. And so now, you know, as we look at this, this passage, uh, it goes on after seeking for the lost and the strays, it says, God says, I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Like those who have been wounded by their communities, those who've been pushed out, who've been broken, who have been oppressed. I will bind them up and strengthen them. And I want to think with us a little bit about that today. That I, I wonder if, if one of the ways that that binding up of the injured and strengthening the weak is to make sure that their stories get heard. To submit to their voices, to listen to their stories, because in the telling there's healing not only for the weak, but for the strong. And so I wanted to invite our friend, Nicole Makatrao. Uh, Nicole, are you out there somewhere in the ether? Can you see me and hear me? Oh, there she is. <laughs> uh, good to see your friend. How are you doing today? Good, how are you? Oh, so good, so good. Um, so I've invited Nicole just to share just a little bit of her perspective on, on this. Nicole's been doing a fair amount of work over the last six months, year, couple of years, five, 10 years, um, on this kind of hearing different perspectives as well as finding her own voice. And it's been part of her journey um, of, of healing and strengthening. And it's been part of our church's journey as we've been healed and strengthened by her. So, Nicole, tell us just a little bit, how long have you been around City Church and why, why did you end up staying at this place? <laughs> so uh, my husband and I, Gabriel, uh, we came to City Church pretty much March of 2019, I believe it was. Okay. Yes, 2019. Um, and it was towards the end of March and our first, uh, visit to city church was while Brenna was preaching about, uh, justice. Um, and I remember she apologized for being longer than she usually is. And we were just super like the, the day we got there and we were hearing her preach, we were just like, yes, this is it. And then, and then of course you, you followed, um, Yes, <laughs> Brenna saying she preached two sermons at once. It was wonderful. They were both. They were both great. They were both great. Um, and then you followed up soon after with uh, stalking us both on Facebook and immediately friending us and asking us to go to uh, I don't remember if it was coffee or or lunch, but either way. Um, and to this day, I know exactly the day I went because I have a message from you on that day. 
that's hilarious that's embarrassing and so uh, we we felt very um wanted and seen so that's why we stayed neat 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 well tell us a little bit about your spiritual background uh the kind of perspectives that you had heard about god and then what it's been like hearing some different perspectives. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's that been like for you. So kind of your growing up perspectives and some of the shifting different perspectives you've heard and these different stories that you're sure. hearing. <clears throat> so I grew up uh, in a uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of God church. Um, so that is very evangelical. Um, and it was a uh, prime, it was, it had two services. It was primarily English and Spanish. So we had, um, kind of a traditional Spanish approach, um, in the Spanish service side. And then, uh, the English side was a little bit more, I would say a little bit more progressive, but like barely. Um, and, um, primarily we grew up listening to, um, you know, men preaching, granted, at least we had, we had men of color preaching. So you know, we were fairly mixed group there. Um, and I primarily, if, if it puts it into perspective, we were kind of forced during um, uh, camps, uh, church camps to speak in tongues, um, even though I never considered myself someone who had the gift of tongues. Um, and it was kind of a lot of uh, pressuring in that way. Um, there was an emphasis on um, what uh, uh, spreading the word of God and the crucifixion. Um, so that's just kind of how it, it tended to have a more uh, guilt spin on it, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of what I grew up in for most of my life until I was about... 18. Um, and then I, I, I went to UC Davis and I started to sort of find a church out there uh, that it, it, I remember it was it was a predominantly Asian church and they taught me that Genesis was poetry and I was like, whoa! <laughs> and so wow. that was like the start of my, I had always had this sort of idea that I didn't want to necessarily read the Bible literally, and I didn't always think that it was uh, an infallible text, but they were thoughts and ideas I could never necessarily share at church. Um, so to hear that from a group of Christians at my college was um, kind of mind-blowing for me, and uh, I, I sort of started down this path during college, um, and at, by the end of college, I had kind of taken a break from I guess what I would consider pre-deconstructing my faith. It was just very much a introduction to it um, until I came back from college and was reintroduced to my old church. Uh, and I, I was married to Gabriel. Well, we were married, we were engaged at the time and both of us looked at each other. And without our friends there, um, it was, we sort of were left to face um, with kind of the teachings and the actual beliefs uh, and we could no longer really stay there based on how we had grown as people during that time. Yeah. So how long were you out of church before you decided to look for another church? Uh, let's see, probably, I'm going to say two years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? 
No, I was thinking because I came back in 2016, so yeah. we didn't find you till 2019. Yeah. We had started looking before then, but we didn't land on City Church until 2019. So I, I, you've been in a few book groups, uh, and this fall you read a particularly significant book for you, and it made you think some about some of the perspectives in your own family that you had not really heard or been able to integrate into your faith. You want to tell us just a little bit about that? Yes. So I actually have, I have all the books that we've been reading here so that I could pull quotes for them that were particularly <laughs> impactful for me. So my the, best the professor, friend, the professor is about to teach. <laughs> so my best friend, um, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was my birthday. She was like, I will send you this book. And she is a, um, she is getting her master's in divinity at um, BU, so Boston University. So of course she's going through her own journey at this time. And she's like, I think that you would like this book. And so it's um, Mujerista Theology. And when I got it in the mail, I texted Bill and I said, hey, Bill, you want to read this book with me? And I guess it kind of started a, a group in which we um, sort of are going down um, each month with like a history month. Usually each month has a history month associated to it. And we're reading a book by an author that belongs to that group. Um, so we started this, I believe, in, in October-ish, which was uh, Latinx Heritage Month or Latinx Heritage Month. Um, but anyways, it, it was a particularly impactful book for me. Um, and more so in, in my progressive theology, it was starting to value knowledge a lot more than kind of what I culturally grew up with. Uh, and I started to get this sort of um, almost like an elitist mindset where if you weren't deconstructing or reading or you know, trying to poke around with your faith a lot, um, that somehow you had a less developed faith or something like that. Um, and this, this book actually centers the more traditional Latina, um, which doesn't necessarily read the Bible. Um, they don't necessarily uh, do a lot of what I'm doing. Um, they, they have uh, an emphasis on their faith, so Pineda faith, um, and they value community and family a lot. So it was, it was pretty much centering what I had grown up with, um, and it, it put it in a perspective that made me truly value, like especially my grandma, who I think is um, like the physical embodiment of who this book is sort of shining a light on. So I was, I was deeply honored to read it from that perspective. And it really changed my mind about um, sort of putting any judgment or any um, tears on faith levels or how you interact and how your own journey with um, your faith goes. So uh, I really, really appreciated it. I mean, if I, if I remember, and this is kind of a new spin, what I'm hearing from you today, but um, at one point you were, you were sharing how refreshing it was to value your grandmother's faith tradition that was not respected by sort of your conservative evangelical family, but you realized, oh, she had her own approach to faith, a little bit more, you know, um, personal, cultural, Catholic. Yeah. But then I hear also you saying, so... So number one, it, she was not really respected by kind of 
your your immediate family growing up and their conservative evangelicalism. But then you also said, you know, sometimes I think progressives dismiss people with sort of simple, simplistic faiths. And you kind of come into this whole new, like, oh my God, she's been at this table the whole time. Yes. <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> been trying to exclude her. Um, so kind of what you're, you're leading off into. So there were certain things about my grandma's face that, that I do think were respected. Um, and this is because I, I personally think my grandma's an Enneagram one, and this is where I get my Enneagram oneness from. Um, she was an avid Bible reader. Now she didn't do much other than read the Bible. So it's, it, she has a, I think a, maybe a literal interpretation of it for the most part, because she is reading it more as a, uh, a simpler way of reading the Bible. So she aptly reads, she goes to church probably like five times a week. So, you, you know, these are, these are tenets of the evangelical faith that are actually very celebrated. Um, but then there are parts of my grandma that, uh, and I think the, um, the book that we read, which is A Lens of Love sort of um, highlighted it in that my grandma had a critical mind and a sensitive heart which were vital for reading the Bible. So those, those things I think were celebrated, um, but her approach to feeling for the marginalized and seeing the world through those eyes was not always highlighted. And my family used to uh, very much get on her case with how much she would donate her time, her energy, her, her money, she's not very wealthy. She gives probably more than all of us put together. Um, and these were items we looked at and we were like, grandma, this is dumb. Why are you doing this? And now I look at it and I'm just like, this is- This is her beautiful. spiritual journey. It's beautiful. Mm. Hey, I wanna, I wanna switch because we need to wrap up here and get it back to Brenda Rubio. But um, now, now you've shifted. So we read Muharish to theology, then you shifted into reading theology from a black perspective um again a different set of stories that you know is is this new for you or have you always done this to, how you know is there one insight that you might gain how has that been for you as you've continued to uh, realize there are more spaces at the table than, than maybe what you thought yes uh so right now we finished reading a lens of love which was by jonathan walton uh, we're in the middle, well, I'm partially in the middle of a, a woman's midrash, and now we started really reading Wild Black. So it's a lot of books. Um, and um, one, of, one of the perspectives that I, I truly appreciate is, is looking at the Bible from a lens of, of a person who is marginalized most of the time. Um, and Womanist Midrash, for example, is looking at women particularly. Uh, lens of Love was trying to move away from a lens of power to a lens of love. So you would look at the person who was most hurt in each story, which I had never, ever thought of, like the concept of looking at um, the people who were truly, you know, oppressed and seeing God in that um, rather than the main person in the story. Um, so it, 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 it was great. And even now with Reading Wild Black, we're, we're moving into more of um, uh, uh, policing and uh, reform on, on, on uh, police reform and everything. Um, his first chapter, which is the only thing that I've read so far, 
pretty much talked about progressive Christianity as like we, we treat it like we came up with it. And I say we because I am a non-Black person. Um, but that I guess erasing how um, uh, Black slaves had interacted with the Bible was very much along the progressive lines um, and not giving sort of the credit where that's due to, to you know, um, pulling out what what is the true Bible instead of the slaveholders Bibles. So I don't know, it was just, it's been very, it's been a lot. It's been really fun though. <laughs> this, is, this is why we picked you because, I mean, because you have that critical mind and that sensitive heart, right? And that you're willing to learn and listen to all these different perspectives and, and center them back at the table, that you are, you're actually finding the lost and bringing home the strays and healing up the wounded um, and by making these stories our stories. Um, and it's just a bigger table with you at it. So thank you, Fred. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate going on this journey through these books with you as well yeah. and our small group of wonderful people. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> I, uh, man, I loved hearing your stories, Nicole, especially about your grandma and, and just realizing, wow, like she actually belongs at this table. Like she she contributes so much and all these other voices and I was really enjoying I don't know why maybe I'm sure but I just saw so many smiles on people's faces as they were listening and so much just like leaning in and just this sense of like yeah doesn't this sound good doesn't it sound good to learn from more people to hear more stories and more perspectives so what's interesting is that I think this whole process which has just this inherent goodness to it is actually how we live out the description in this passage of Ezekiel of destroying the sleek and the strong. Even though that sounds like that sounds like violent and but I think really so often it's more it's it's transformative. It's not about destroying people. It's about destroying oppressive systems. It's about destroying power structures, even in our churches, in our relationships, in conversations that keep us from each other, that, that erect these false whitewashed walls between us. So one of the other resources that a group of us have been listening to and, and learning from has been a webinar called Decolonizing the Bible. It's with Lisa Sharon Harper uh, and Renee August, and uh, we're about halfway through, and it has just been brilliant. Now, if you wonder what it means to decolonize the Bible, me too, uh, you know, I think all of us kind of came in going like, that sounds good. What is that? What does it mean to decolonize the Bible? Well, when you think about colonization, right, it's this, this, this act of asserting power over, asserting a culture, a lens, uh, and, and saying, this is the way it's going to be, right? It's asserting a dominance uh, of one culture over another. And so to decolonize the Bible is to say, hey, for too long, there has been a system of the sleek and the strong who've been dominating the conversation. 
around how we read the Bible. And it's been hurtful. It's been hurtful uh, to the white folks, the people of European heritage who have been believing a lie about their own superiority uh, have been have been limited in exposure and perspectives and just getting to hear from others. And it's been hurtful to people of color who have, in many cases, internalized this sense of like, oh, I guess that's the only way I'm allowed to read it because that's what the people up front, that's what the people in charge uh, are are telling me. Bill's putting a great quote in the chat uh, from the new book uh, that his group is reading, Reading While Black. Euro-American scholars, ministers, and lay folk have over the centuries used their economic, academic, religious, and political dominance to create the illusion that the Bible read through their experience is the Bible read correctly. That's colonization. And so decolonizing the Bible at its, at its most basic is to say, no, we cannot read the Bible correctly unless we're hearing from a multiplicity of voices and perspectives. We need each other. And we need people who don't look like us, who don't have the same ethnic and cultural background as us to help us read the Bible from different perspectives, to not just hear one voice, but to get to get to hear it all and to have our imaginations woken up in a new way. And to help us see the sick and sneaky ways our power structures can affect how we read the Bible, how we can read the Bible in a way to help us just feel more comfortable instead of actually be transformed. Our stories actually matter. So I go back again to that, that story about the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son and his elder brother. And the way Jesus tells the story, there's sort of a cliffhanger. The brother's off and angry. He doesn't want the system to be shaken up. He doesn't want his brother to be restored to the community. He's gotten used to claiming this table, this space as his. And it's not. And that's what the father has to tell him. It's not. It's for both of you. I want to restore my whole Block. I want all my children at this table. I want all their voices to be heard. And so the elder brother is, is left with a choice. Is he willing to come sit at the table and play by these new rules? Is he willing to engage the conversation differently? To hang back and listen? a little more, not to exert sort of a conversational dominance or any other kind of dominance, but to say like, yes, we're going to be here together. The Father has invited you just as the Father has invited me. There are so many ways, I think, for us to lean into that, to say yes to that invitation, ways that we, we talk with each other. Clearly, obviously, we've been reading a lot of books Together is one way to say like, yeah, let's hear from more voices. Let's, 
Let's decolonize. Let's read the Bible well together. Um, some of you may feel like, man, I'm not a reader. I, I, have, I have no desire to get the book list. That's totally okay too. I, I hear so many stories, all the different ways people are leaning in. Uh, we do have our young adults group uh, is actually going to be uh, in the, the next season, trying in just conversations together. You don't have to do it by yourself, but in conversations together to say like, let's decolonize the Bible. Let's, let's try reading scripture. And I know for some, for some people, man, even just to read the Bible can feel all triggery and weird, but let's try and read it together from a new lens. Let's try it, see if we can help each other. I'm so excited about that group uh, that's gonna be starting up. I know people who just, they start out by trying to invite a diverse range of voices onto their Instagram feed. And who am I not hearing from? Are all the people on my feed, you know, of a particular background? How would I diversify that? I've personally been leaning into podcasts. I've done a couple of the book groups, uh, but just by things like uh, listening to Reclaiming My Theology or a recent one I found is a People's Theology, uh, to get to hear from, from amazing, amazing leaders and thinkers, all from different backgrounds. It's just been huge. How are you being invited to the table differently? Bill, any last thoughts? Nope. Nope. <laughs>